What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will speak with Mark Salter, author of The Luckiest Man, Life with John McCain. Mark, for 18 years, served as Senator McCain's speechwriter, advisor in both the United States Senate and on the campaign trail, and was considered by many to be his alter ego. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Michael. So before we start, I want—I just want to preface this by saying, I—I I, I loved *The Luckiest Man*. It's a—it's a great read. The narrative is compelling, and um, for those who are listening uh, to this, uh, I think you have to be prepared that when you read this book, you will both laugh and cry, because that's—that's who John McCain was. Um, so thank you so much for for writing it, and thank you for for joining us. And I'd like to start, if you don't mind, um, with you telling us something about yourself. I, when, I, when I was teaching at the Kennedy School, I used to tell my students that there was no right way to progress a career in Washington, that people arrive in various ways. And your biography, in a sense, is a, is a case in point um, proving that to be, be true. So why don't you tell us um, about yourself, if you don't mind? Sure, and thanks. First, thanks for the kind words you said about the book. Um, um, that's very nice. Always very gratifying to hear. Um, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm a, I'm conspicuously lacking in ambition, and always have been. So I didn't really have a. I'm not what you would call a careerist or someone who had a, a firm plan to be president by the time he was 40. Um, I was uh, 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 when I graduated from high school. I worked on the railroad for about four years and change uh, because uh, because I could <laughs> and it paid me about uh, this is be the early 70s paid me about four four and a half dollars an hour which then seemed like a lot of money and uh, I uh, hung out with a rock and roll band sang some harmonies with and uh, just generally screwed around had a good time and uh, didn't take things too seriously until the weather you know of my fourth winter on the railroad which is I grew up in Iowa, and it's uh, rather cold there in the wintertime, and uh, it's cold to be working outside. And uh, I decided I might uh, I might try college, and maybe there's an easier way to make a living. And um, I went to a, a state university in Iowa, Northern Iowa University, and then uh, I transferred to Georgetown. 
Uh, when I graduated from Georgetown in 1981, I had an internship at the State Department's Intelligence Bureau, and um, but all my buddies had gone up to work on Wall Street and make, make money, and uh, my college buddies, and I wanted to go up there and have fun in New York, too. So I knew that uh, there were a lot of Georgetown people at the U.S. mission to the U.N. at that time because Gene Kirkpatrick, a 10-year Georgetown professor, had been appointed by Ronald Reagan to be the United States ambassador there, and uh, I walked in and applied for a job and got one in the press office. And uh, after a couple of years, I started writing speeches, some of them for, for Gene Kirkpatrick and some of the other people there. And um, uh, when she left uh, the UN, uh, I went to work for a few months later and uh, accompanied her in 1988 to the Republican convention. Uh, in New Orleans, uh, she'd given a speech there that I'd worked on a little bit with her, and uh, uh, then she agreed to do some interviews in the in the Superdome where the where the uh, convention was held. It's a big cavernous place, as everyone knows. That's the third or fourth or fifth interview. Um, I could I couldn't find the last one of the night, and she was getting rather impatient, and uh, I had to call the press shop, and they sent up a volunteer who escorted us to the last interview. I sort of hit it off. It turned out she was a volunteer from John McCain's office. She was his press secretary, Tori Clark, and uh, we became buddies and went out and had a couple of pops at night. She introduced me to a bunch of other McCain staffers, and uh, they invited me to watch uh, Bush's acceptance speech, uh, George H.W. Bush's acceptance speech from the Arizona delegation, where Tori introduced me the next night, introduced me to John McCain, who said something like, I hear Tori says you're a pretty good writer. Maybe you'll write something for me someday. Uh, that led to a couple of freelance jobs for him, which then in turn led to uh, an offer to be his foreign affairs aide and uh, chief speechwriter in, in his Senate office. And uh, when I'm asked what my plan was, uh, my career plan was, I said I plan to get lost in the Superdome and let the rest of my life happen. I should also add that one of the people Tori introduced me to that night was uh, John McCain's scheduler and personal assistant, who I ended up marrying and having two two daughters with. So uh, it was a, a serendipitous uh, uh, get, my my uh, uh, my lack of direction was serendipitous that night. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful story. I mean, leaving college, going to work uh, for the railroad, um, and and then getting lost in the Superdome. And here we are, this many years later, um, writing. Well, I guess this is your eighth book, seven with with Senator McCain, and this this um, parting. Um, and I, I expect that there are other books in, in 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 your future. But it does prove the the point that I think is always important, which is that there is no right way, and you you go what in a way that feels right and and sort of hope for the best. Yeah. And in your make, case, make it worked out great. Make the most of your opportunities when they come up. <laughs> but uh, yeah. really, I, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't have a plan. That I probably should have. But, uh, but, so, uh, but you know, try to, in, in, try to recognize when good luck has happened and, and act accordingly. Yeah. So, so John McCain's background is a little bit different than yours. In some respects, there's overlap, but in some respects, um, there was a plan laid out uh, for him. And uh, yes, let's, let's, let's start analyzing who John McCain is, because the part of, of the book, the, the biggest uh, sort of 
part of the book that I liked the best was learning who John McCain was. I was familiar with some of the policy positions and some of his presidential runs, but learning sort of who he was, how he thought, what mattered to him, and how he was, you know, sort of created by his mother and father were were, were fascinating uh, uh, to to me. Uh, he there was a lot expected of of him. You you write in a book in the book that his father, who was a four four star admiral, and his grandfather, which who was a four star admiral, expected um, young Johnny to go to Naval Academy and, and right. follow in their, in their footsteps. This was like predetermined. I think you write that from age nine on, his parents would introduce him uh, to their friends as this is Johnny. He's going to the Naval Academy. Um, right. so, so, so tell us a little about how, how did McCain you know, sort of react to this predetermined uh, life course for him? Well, you know, it, uh, he resented it in a way, uh, but but he was also enthralled to it. And it was not only his father and his grandfather, but he comes from a long, and I mean very long line, like Skip Gates, the Harvard historian, who has that uh, show that traces people's uh, ancestry on, on PBS, it, it tra- traced his family back to Charlemagne. So he had a long, long military history, and an ancestor served on Washington staff, um, his uh, his uh, uh, great grandfather's siblings fought in the Confederacy. Um, they were a Mississippi family. Ultimately, they had a plantation in Mississippi. Uh, John visited the plantation, but he never didn't grow up there. I think he was a, they were a Navy family, sort of traveled all over the country. And, um, he was born actually in the Panama Canal zone, but uh, but it was a long illustrious military history and. Uh, and he felt the, you know, he felt the burden of great expectations, but he also was sort of, uh, you know, he felt felt the romance of it too. Um, he didn't like. Uh, I once asked him, well, where where did you want to go if you didn't want to go to the Naval Academy? And he said, I wanted to be an English lit major at Princeton. You know, I don't know if people know this, but he's a very very well read uh, man, John McCain, uh, and uh, it really had a great. Um, Great love of, of good writing. I loved Hemingway and uh, Fitzgerald and Somerset Maugham, and um, you know, was really quite a discerning reader. But um, anyway, so he, you know, he, 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 I think the idea that he wasn't asked or wasn't given a choice, that he was, as you said, introduced to people constantly as this is Johnny. He's going to the Naval Academy, and um, that that uh, I think you know, part of the reason why he was such a Nonconformist in high school, and then once he got to the Naval Academy, at the Naval Academy, he was rather rebellious, and uh, uh, you know uh, his way of sort of asserting his own autonomy, um, which he felt had been restrained by the, this burden of great expectations he carried, and uh, um, he, uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he would, uh, you know, he would rack up the demerits, and uh, you know, get caught uh, breaking rules and stuff, but he was always careful. He always maintained. He was always very careful never to violate the honor codes, both Episcopal Boys High School, where he went to high school with the boys boarding school in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, had an honor code, and he fell under the influence of uh, a history teacher, the history master there by the name of William B. Rabinell, who'd been a 
uh, and uh, uh, tank commander in, in Patton's Third Army in World War II, and he, he, who, who taught him to love Shakespeare. He's also influenced very much by his father's library, which had, uh, you know, his father had quite a library that he had inherited from his father and family. And, uh, uh, you know, all that sort of informed the honor code that he had, which allowed him to, you know, permitted all sorts of infractions of the rules and permitted a boisterous, uh, not uh, ship-shaped sort of uh, approach to life. But, uh, you know, never lie, cheat, or steal, never violate the tenets of an honor code, keep your word, you know, treat people fairly, do the honorable thing. But uh, anything short of that was fine. And uh, and that's how he uh, expresses individuality in those days. Yeah, it was. It really was a rebellion, it seemed to me, against this predetermined um, destiny. He, he, he seemed to say that while he resented it and sort of like dreaded it in some measure, he had a sense that this is where he ultimately belonged. So yes. he had the duality. Uh, he had that that duality. Um, That's right. To him, and, and it sort of manifested in, in, in a sense uh, with his disciplinary problems. I think you wrote that you can tell the story. How many times did he think he walked from Annapolis to Baltimore uh, to to march off yeah. his demerits? Yeah. 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 So the. Extra duty, they called it. And, I mean, he, he 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 made quite a joke of it. And down through the years, he was always humorously recalling his hijinks in Annapolis. But so so the amount of times he went to march extra duty on the weekends for when you, when you got the marriage, he just marched back and forth, sort of remotely. Uh, and uh, um, he, the, the 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 number of trips that he made to Baltimore and back, and in terms of the mileage. Uh, Varied from with every telling from you know 117 trips to you know, 25. <laughs> or, you know, it didn't really matter. It, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he, he was uh, he he graduated fifth from the bottom of his class, which he never never minded telling people. He always made a joke of that too. Uh, but uh, yeah, wasn't his line uh, something like, "I graduated fifth from the bottom of my class and was a U.S. presidential nominee." Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, and that, he, he used to say that with awe, um, really. And that was, you know, he, he himself was a very lucky man, and uh, um, um, he would say that with awe. It really, near the end of his life, he, we were shortly after his diagnosis. We were sitting at, uh, at his weekend place in northern Arizona, on a bend of a creek, and uh, the town is property, and. Um, and he said, uh, and again, for the umpteenth time, and he said, just in the bottom of my class at the Naval Academy and a Republican nominee for president, unbelievable. And there's a way of saying, you know, how 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 fortunate he felt. Yeah. But 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 his dad his dad was missing uh for for much of his life. He 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 was yeah. at sea. Uh, he was at sea a lot. Um mm-hmm. And when he was at home, uh, you, you describe how he was a, a binge drinker. He suffered yeah. from alcoholism, and and yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's sort of episodically. And, yes, he he was. Um, I you could tell there's a little resentment there over uh, uh, lack of a constant presence from his father. I, I mean, he respected his father and admired his father, and. Uh, 
and understood that his father was sacrificing for you know uh, uh, you know something you know I guess you know, more important even than than an individual family. But uh, um, he understood all that. But it's still he would you know sometimes when I would talk to John for the books, I'd say, well, describe what you know what your father was like, and he would make these very you know, uh, you know minimal <laughs> descriptions but he would say something like well on Christmas morning we would open our presents and my father would excuse himself go upstairs and put on his uniform and leave and uh, um, but most of that uh, you know, his, his father worked and I, and I asked him what was the difference between his grandfather as you mentioned had been a four star animal too and he and his, his father and his grandfather were very close and uh, um, I said, well, I said, what was the difference between them? You know, because he, he was, you know, his grandfather died when he was, I think, nine years old. Um, so he didn't know him all that long. But he was, you know, he was sort of mesmerized by him. And I said, what was the difference? They were both four-star animals. They were both at war. They were, both had long sea duties. What was the difference? And he said, well, my grandfather loved the Navy. My father lived for the Navy. Uh, which is, you know, there's there's a meaning in there somewhere that he's inviting you to to sort of ruminate about. But uh, um, uh, he, you know, he's you know he talked about how. Uh, but he, again, I want to stress it was he, he understood the significance of his father's life and the, and the significance of his father's work. And he talked about he talked all the time about uh, his memory of Pearl Harbor Day. His father was a, a submarine skipper at the sub base in New Orleans, Connecticut. And on on uh, uh, um, Pearl Harbor Day on December seventh, a black sedan pulled in front of their house in New London, and an officer yelled Jack to his father, "Jack, the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor." And, and John said, "You know, my memory of that now is that my father went inside, threw something in a case, suitcase, and came back outside, got into the sedan, and drove off this black sedan. And I didn't see him again till the end of the war. That wasn't true. He saw him several times. His father first." Uh, uh, participated in the uh, uh, preparatory work for the uh, uh, you know, for the landings in North Africa in the Atlantic, and uh, and then you know came back to New London and traveled across country and deployed from California for the Pacific Theater and uh, and had two submarine commands out there. But he saw him a couple of times during the war. But he said, my memory of it, it was that was it. This car, and he goes, and that car to me was history. That history had come and collected my dad. And, uh, yeah. and 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 he, and he wanted that for himself too. So he understood it. The drinking, uh, he had two views of it. One, I think it, uh, you know, John would enjoy a vodka, you know, while he was grilling something on the weekends or something. But he really was well, not teetotaler, but he he drank very sparingly. Um, and I think that was probably a reaction to seeing his father. His father was an episodic drinker, a binge drinker. You know, he would go for he said for weeks, sometimes months. He'd be on the wagon, you know, and I admired his struggle against it. That his father would pray on his knees at night aloud for strength to fight uh, his weakness for alcohol. And uh, he said, but it, but it, but it changed him. He said, and I said, well, how did it change him? And all John would tell me was he was unrecognizable when he was drunk. And, and he didn't elaborate further than that, but uh, it, it made, a, obviously, a very lasting impression on his son. Yeah, and it's interesting, and, and we'll move to his mom in a second, but you, you write that notwithstanding all of this, his father, who was essentially 
missing in action, um, no pun intended, um, no, no military pun intended, um, and had this episodic drinking problem. You write that gaining his father's and I guess even his grandfather's respect for him was the most lasting ambition of John McCain's life long after their deaths. Yeah, he would say that. Yeah, he, he would say that. Uh... He said that in a couple of speeches, but he would say it was, yeah, it was, I mean, they, they were, I mean, I think they were the first father and son four-star admirals, and uh, um, yeah, they were they were huge, important figures in, the, in, in Navy history. His grandfather was on the USS Missouri in the front rank of officers for the surrender, of the Japanese surrender, and he was, you know, uh, Halsey called him my right arm. Uh, he was a huge figure in naval aviation. I mean, he got his wings at 50. Um, and his father was Sink Peck, which is the biggest operational military fleet in the United States Armed Forces. He, you know, everything in the Pacific Theater, which at that time, he was Sink Peck, including, <laughs> including Vietnam, where, you know, half a million Americans were serving. Um, it, uh, uh, they were big, outsized, giant, colorful characters with huge, huge Navy careers. And, uh, um, you know, he, he, he respected that, you know, he knew what it took to, he knew the sacrifices it took. His grandfather came home from the second world war, uh, and his wife had a welcome home cocktail party for him and their home in Coronado. He dropped out of a heart attack. He was only 61 years old, but he looked like he was 90. You know, he just, he was so, you know, a life of great stress and strain. And, and as he, his grandfather always described it riotous living, but uh, they were those are those are those are big figures to sort of live up to or live in the shadow of. So you you yeah, you, yeah. You, you you I imagine you know, you're always mindful of you know what they might be thinking of whatever you're up to. Yeah. So that that, that there's that book um, by Tim O'Brien, the things they carried. Um, that sure. wonderful story about the soldiers and the things they carry and and. Yeah. It seems that these are these are some of the things that John McCain carried. Um, sure. Yeah. sure. So now Roberta, his his mom, who um, wow. were 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 in um, November on the on the brink of Thanksgiving, rolling into yeah. into uh, yeah. December, and she she's just died in in this this past October at, at the. Age of 108, um, she, she raised him, and John McCain used to say that really he took after her. Uh, so tell us, so we, we understand that his parent, his father, sort of shaped his sense of sort of responsibility in some sense. His mother, I guess, gave him his sense of curiosity, his uh, wise guy sort of personality um mm-hmm. so talk a little yeah, about was, roberta and and and, and, was, and john's relationship with her and what sort of what she impressed in, in his soul she was, a, she was a very charming very funny <laughs> vivacious force of nature um I, I don't think i've ever met anyone quite like her um she was just so full of life she vibrated and uh, and it was always you know quite sarcastic, you know always ready with a quip, always ready to put John in his place. <laughs> you know when I, I was telling a story that he was 
he called a he would uh, you know regularly call and let her know if he was going to be on say meet the press or something on Sunday or some big interview you know he, she might want to watch and she would have this quip uh, fools names and fools faces are often seen in public places <laughs> but they're hmm. to deflate him but um, you know she was a uh, uh, endlessly adventurous she was her, her father was an Oklahoma wildcatter and struck rich in 40 and sort of retired and spent his time taking his daughters, you know, all around the country. And uh, she had a, uh, just a, a, an ingrained sense of adventure and curiosity. And so, uh, you, you know, whenever, you know, all the sort of maintenance of the family uh, was left to her when, when her husband deployed or, whether war or peacetime, you know, she would move the family from one base to the next, you know, and drive cross country, you know, say from Connecticut to, to California. And, uh, and she would always route their travels through, you know, uh, places that had some natural wonder or some historical significance. And uh, he, he, he always remembered these fascinating excursions. And she just had this appetite for knowledge that, that really he had too. He was a restless curious man as she was and uh and had her had her sort of wise ass sense of humor came came right right from roberta and really was and he owned up to it says i'm my, my mother's son uh, you know his his father was someone he wanted to live up to you know and and uh, and, and honor but you know his his mother impressed you know some of mccain's more outsized traits those came directly from her but I, there's a quote that she has of him, which I loved, where um, which you attribute to her at least, and, and it was that his mom said of John that he was a man of no sides, meaning yeah, that he had no sides. What you what you what you what you saw was what you got. He was the same to all people. Yeah, she, and that's she was quite correct about that. You, uh, I think, in sort of the. the Source of McCain's appeal, public appeal, his charisma, if you want to call it that, was that he really people sort of sensed that he was who he was. He was authentic. He wasn't uh, he wasn't putting on airs. He didn't, and he treated everybody, you know, you know, the same. Sometimes short-tempered impatience, and some, sometimes great graciousness, you know. But it didn't it didn't really vary whether you were, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, whether obscure person or a famous person. It just he was. Uh, he was uh, he was who he was. He was, you know, <laughs> and so and so was she. She was, she wasn't cowed or intimidated by anybody. You know, she fit right in in any circle. Um, you know, you could take her to a ball game and she'd fit in with the crowd, or you know, you could take her to the White House and she'd fit. You know, she 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 was a she's an entertaining person. So, so my my wife's mom was was a twin, uh, Roberta. Uh huh. Uh, John's mom was a twin, so I know how much trouble mm -hmm. twins can cause. I observed it in my life, and uh, uh, John observed it in his. But tell us, there's one story before we move on to, to John, which I loved also in the book, which was you, you said she was an inveterate traveler. She she loved to travel, and, and, and in her 90s with her twin, they went off to, to, to Europe um, to rent a car and travel around. Europe. Um, tell us, tell us uh, what happened because it's a wonderful story. Uh, well, her name was Roberta, and her sisters, twin sisters, name was Rowena. They were, they were identical twins, and they were very, very beautiful. And they were sort of famous debutantes in Los Angeles after their father uh, struck struck oil, 
and they, he'd moved the family to LA, and they were, you know, their 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 debut was, you know, in the, in the newspaper. And uh, uh, when she eloped with John's father, it was the front page of the LA Times. You know, so they were, you know, they were quite they were, uh, yeah, quite something. But uh, they they traveled uh, both widowed at a fairly early age, both of them, and they were extremely close, as you can imagine, and. Uh, they both had a love of travel, and they traveled constantly. I mean, just constantly, and to places that weren't, you know, weren't always the most, uh, uh, you know, uh, gentle and comfortable, uh, you know, uh, trips. But uh, when they were in their nineties, once they were, as they often did, went on their way to Europe, and they were going to drive. They wanted to drive from Germany to um, Turkey. There was something Roberto Rolino wanted to see in Turkey. I can't remember what, but. Uh, uh, they, you know, they fly to Frankfurt and they try to rent a car and the car, the rental agency says, no, you're too old. We won't, we won't rent to you. You really shouldn't have a driver's license. So they went and bought a Mercedes they kept in, in Frankfurt, you know, and drove themselves that way. But, uh, so they were very resourceful. It's wonderful. Just a, it's wonderful. So she was, she was also we, we, on that same time. She, uh, I'll tell you another Quick story, if you allow me. She was uh, sure. she decided. Uh, Rowena retained her her her, her home in, in L.A. and and uh, Roberta lived uh, uh, in Washington after their husbands died. And uh, she decided she wanted to spend Christmas with Rowena. She would drive to take her car that she was going to give to her nephew in California. So she was going to drive across country. John McCain got a call. He was in his place up near Sedona at the time from the state, state trooper saying. We've pulled your mother over. We clocked her doing 112 outside Flagstaff <laughs> in our 90s. <laughs> it's it's something. And 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 so when we get to the McCain um, part of the book, you know, who who was John McCain? You, you see both the 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 influence of the parents in him, but what mm-hmm. I think that I don't know from who it came exactly or it's an amalgamation of it. What you wrote about John McCain, which I think uh, we'll, we'll talk about his time in, in Vietnam in a minute, but mm-hmm. you write about him that he, he never gave up hope that the most marvelous achievement of human beings was not to lose hope when hope was for fools. Um, and, and, and you say, too, that he, he held on to hope in, in, in the grimmest of situations, and yet he was a, a cynic, but but mm-hmm. a cynic and a romantic a, a, mm-hmm. at the same time. So can you talk about this uh, hopefulness sure. aspect, which may well have saved his life in Vietnam, but but and we'll talk sure. about that as I said. But but sure. this is I said this is what I found so interesting about the book was almost like reading it from a, a psychologist. Uh, mm-hmm. analysis of, of a patient's standpoint. It was just fascinating. So tell us about this holding on to hope in the grasp well, of situations, yeah. even when it was for fools. He, um, you know, I think, I mean, that was obviously that, that, that uh, capacity he had was fortified in Vietnam. I think he had it when he got there, but uh, it was, uh, it was certainly strengthened uh, while I was there. And uh, he was, you know, and I think, uh, you know, it's, you, you understand it when, in, that, in the experience of Vietnam, he had um, he, he furious trade this thing. You, you you felt every emotion, all in the same experience. You know, so you would 
you would see human beings at their worst and their very best in the, in the same experience. So he's very cynical about the world. He's very realistic about it. He knew it, understood it with all its cruelty and the corruption and because uh, uh, he'd seen uh, uh, people treat other people savagely. And, uh, um, but he'd also seen how, you know, you could take that and persist and how, you know, his POWs bonded together and the sort of you know, code of conduct they had and, and held each other up through these t- terrible experiences, you know, he knew, you know, he, so he just had this duality where he could look at the world and know it's, 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 a, it's a terribly corrupt, cruel place, but uh, human beings are capable of, of transcending it anyway. And that gave, had a great affinity for, um, and it was a great supporter of, you know, human rights, political dissent, you know, um, you know movements in, in various countries. And, uh, and the more beleaguered and 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 sorry, you know, difficult, you know, the more ho- ha- sort of hopeless, really. Is he, you know, Belarus has been in the news. Uh, he, he had a particular affinity for the, the you know, sort of the human rights advocates there, who you have to meet with in Latvia or Lithuania or somewhere because they wouldn't let McCain in in Minsk. But because uh, um, he, he 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 loved the ones that hung on, you know, when, and I think the, the how he described it was when when experience had taught you hopeless for, for fools, they still had hope, and uh, and and I, those are the people he admired above all others because I think he had been that guy in prison. I think he was somehow had that capacity. He always said I was a professional soldier. I was in my thirties. I was prepared for the experience. I wasn't a draftee. I wasn't a kid. You know, um, you know, I was as ready as you can be for it. But uh, um, nevertheless, it was quite a crucible he went through, and and he came out of it with this this sort of fantastic duality, this absolute utter refusal to give up hope, and and which persisted in him to the very last moments of his life. You know, he just I remember you know, when he was very very sick in the summer. He's still trying to, you know, plan a way to reintroduce another immigration bill in the Senate. Well, it was clear to all of us around him that, you know, he would he would never be going back to the Senate. And uh, uh, he just it was just uh, it was a deep, very admirable quality, and and, and you know, sort of you know hard to, hard to forget. Yeah, the, the duality uh, you write about uh, also is manifest in in something you wrote. You you, you, you in quoting the the late um, journalist uh, Bob Timberg, who wrote this mm-hmm. book, the the Nightingale Song, about people mm-hmm. uh, McCain being one who graduated and he followed their 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 yeah. careers. He writes of McCain. He was like an unschooled boxer. His style was to charge to the center of the ring and throw punches until someone went down. But yet, at the same time, you say he was sentimental and very easily moved to tears. So here is this unschooled boxer who will punch until somebody goes down, and, and yet at the same time, he can watch a romantic comedy and, and get easily moved to, to tears. Yeah. Interesting. He's, he was, uh, I mean, one is just asserted that his, the, that sort of charge of the center of the ring mentality was how he it's, you know that was his. That's how he confronted adversaries, whether they be, you know, you know, just uh, you know, uh, ar- ar- arguments on the floor of the Senate or or you know, uh, prison guards in Hanoi. But uh, 
um, he had a very confrontational, I guess, let's, let's go, you know, and, and, you know, and would really ramp, ramp it up from zero to 60 in this short amount of time. And you know, sometimes you tell him like, hey, you're a little rough on that guy. He wouldn't even realize it. Well, really? I didn't think I was that. <laughs> it just, his, he just, it, and I always thought that was such an apt description of him that Timbers wrote. It's a marvelous book, by the way, but, uh, um, um, but it was just that was very much his style of confrontation, whether it was you know, argument or or almost a life and death struggle. Um, the other thing was he, he just he was a, you know he had a you know he could be he could be ornery and irritable and and sort of hard backed about things, but he did have a sort of you know it, was, it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't really a difficult feat to get him emotional, you know. When I, you know I wrote a lot of his speeches and I I knew. When I was writing one, I said this this line will will make him choke up, and uh, and I used to leave him in there deliberately because it was very effective when he did, you know. But uh, uh, you know, he so you could get him, and I think I told the story in the book. You might have been referencing you know, that uh, we had both, I traveled overseas with him quite a bit, and he was flying in the middle of the night some somewhere in Asia, and he was. I'd fallen asleep, and then when I woke up, I looked over at him, and he was watching the, that movie Ghost with Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze, and I saw a tear <laughs> rolling down his cheek, you know, which just seemed ridiculous. But uh, <laughs> uh, he was, uh, you know, and you know, he he he, he was uh, he was a sentimental guy. Yeah, well, when the Righteous Brothers song comes on at the end of Ghost, it's hard not to cry. But you don't think of um, of John McCain as as tearing up over a ghost having been held in a concentration camp for five and a half years and tortured. Um, I don't think I didn't tease him mercilessly. <laughs> well, but you, you you say that he was this um, charging bull. It, it, uh, throwing punches in the center of the ring, but but what I found out to be interesting in the book too was that he was um, sort of an amateur Borscht Belt Catskills comedian, and that yeah, he actually yeah. used he used humor besides being a, 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 a boxer, if you will. Um, he was he he used humor um, a, as part of his way of interacting with people. It was both disarming and, and pointed, but, but talk a little bit about that. Well, he loved, he loved he, to laugh and he loved to make people laugh. Um, he was, uh, uh, he, right, he was very much a Henry Youngman type. He would start every sort of, even, even speeches in somewhat formal settings, he often would start by making a couple of wisecracks, but his stump speeches when he was a candidate for president or a Senate candidate or something, always began with 10 or 15 minutes of, you know, I mean, we, long-time staff and reporters who covered him, you know, for years, you know, would joke about it. I mean, he's, he, he he didn't have an original joke. He never, he never had one. He came, he stole them from Mo Udall, who he was very fond of, and uh, Bob Dole, and uh, a bunch of other guys who could be pretty funny. And, uh, he just uh, you know, he would add them on, and somebody would tell him one, and it would you know, and he'd get a whole catalog of these things. You know, I'd be like uh, Henny Youngman or Bob Hope or something up there in the first ten, fifteen minutes. Would just be you know, you know, one, one, one joke after another. You know, whether they were sort of you know uh, 
you know, appropriate to the moment or not. And, uh, um, you know, and he, nothing he liked more than to make people laugh. And, uh, it's just, and he, you know, he was, a, he was a natural. He could be funny, too, on his feet, sort of improvised. And his, uh, it wasn't all stolen jokes. I mean, he was a, he was a natural inveterate, sort of natural wise-ass. You know, and he just couldn't help cracking wise. But, uh, uh, you know, yeah, it was, and, you know, it was fun. He was always, you know, he had a very teasing sense of humor, like his mother had. She was had a very teasing sense of humor, and he would tease the staff and his kids and just about anybody, um, you know, all, all the time. And it was really kind of funny. And I tell a couple of stories where he would always, he would introduce staff to whomever is, you know, variously on a work release program after a spell in prison or just out of rehab. And uh, um, you know, sometimes people would think he was. Serious, and he introduced one young guy to General David Petraeus. Said, um, "You know, he's just uh, he's on a uh, work release program, and I just got out of prison." Said, well, good for you, son. <laughs> and uh, that kind of eccentric character actor Gary Busey or something. <laughs> he introduced right. staff for right. him once. He's just he's just back out of Betty Ford's, and Gary Busey goes, "So am I. What are we in for?" <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> the, 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 the last thing about McCain, and then we'll talk a little bit about the more serious parts of, uh, uh, of his life, although knowing who he was lets you understand about his code of conduct and the issues that, that he held so dear. The thing that one of the things that struck me was that McCain was sort of a, a man constantly in, in motion. And there's this poem that I love by W.H. Auden called As I Walked Out One Evening. And in it, there's a line that says, the years run like rabbits. And it seemed to me that McCain sort of appreciated that, the years run like rabbits. And he was not about to miss out on one moment of, of life. He was going to live it. And maybe that was because of five and a half years in the prison camp um, uh, under torture um, and the like, but he did seem to want to make sure that there was no wasted moments uh, while he was uh, breathing air on earth. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, 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 I'm certainly probably, you know, uh, reinforce that tendency, but I think he probably had that too. And it wasn't so much, I don't think he looked at like, oh, life is gone here today, gone tomorrow, as much as it was, he just had a natural exuberance for life. He he, he, he threw himself into this. He, I always describe, the verb I always use is he hurtled through life. You know, he just threw yeah. himself into things. And, you know, he, he would have you know, five, six, seven projects going at the same time. You know, and everything, you know, he went to his place in northern Arizona on the weekends and marching up and down the hills and, you know, all right, let's have a picnic over here. It's just like a constant, constant, constant activity. When he traveled overseas, he would drag his colleagues on these congressional delegations, CODELs, you know, he would, they would, you know, they'd go to five countries in, in eight days, you know, and they, they would call them McCain death marches. He just had this, this, and that too, I think, comes from his mom. You know, it just, just as I said, hurtled through his life, and as if he was just in a hurry, but not, 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 not so much. I think because he feared it would be, I'll be gone someday. I think he just, he just, that's that's how he got the most enjoyment out of life. Hmm. So, 
with all of this, the the thing that struck me about McCain, and you can people can look at McCain and they can say, well, I disagreed with him on the surge, or I disagreed with him on mm-hmm. on this or that, and you know people can take policy positions um, with respect to to his positions, but I think that which impressed me most was that whatever position he took, it it seemed to derive from what you call his his code of conduct. He had this code of conduct which informed his analysis of 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 his life and how he chose to represent himself as a as a public figure. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's about as an important aspect of his character as as exists. All right. Well, he, you know, I, I mentioned before, you know, he, he got a lot of it from his father and his grandfather. They had a very, you know, sort of a professional military officer. It's, you know, um, you know, uh, an officer doesn't lie, cheat, or steal, or you know, or you know, swap his responsibilities off to a subordinate. You know, um, he accepts responsibilities that are his, and uh, and uh, uh, doesn't blame others for his failures. That sort of. But, you know, McCain's great view, his big sort of life view, it wasn't just his sort of political code. It was just his view from life that, you know, that there wasn't – and in this, he, he, he came to understand Vietnam more fully than he had before, I think. That, you know, that, that it's, it's important that you, you serve, you sacrifice in a cause that's bigger than yourself, you know. If you serve a cause greater than your self-interest, that you you have to be part of something larger. And uh, as long as you did that and you treated people fairly, um, you know you you would redeem your whatever your flaws and failings were. You'd redeem them by sacrificing in service to to a, a big cause and uh, and for other people. Um, so that that was kind of his code, and that's you know uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's. Yeah, he pretty much stuck to it you know, all his life. Yeah, you, the way you phrase it in the book is what mattered to him most was that you act honorably in the service of something more important than yourself and that you treat people honorably. And, uh, yeah. you know, as I said, you can agree or disagree with McCain on any particular policy issue, but you sort of can't disagree with, you have to have uh, just absolute respect for a person who viewed their code of conduct in in, in those in those terms seems to me. Yeah, I think he I think he remained pretty faithful to it. In all my experiences with him, he did. Yeah, you say that he. We talked about his personality earlier, and you say, well, he had that before Vietnam. He had that before Vietnam. But this is the first time you've said this is something he developed or or refined. Um, articulated while in in Vietnam, so this sure. this takes us to his captivity, and maybe you can talk a little bit about it. Sure, I mean what what I meant by that was you know he he spent a lot of his youth obviously we talked about it sort of asserting his individuality against you know the pressures of the burdens of expectations, his family's expectations, and. Uh, um, um, you know, but in Vietnam, I mean, his, indivi- his individuality ran up to a force that uh, it couldn't overcome. And, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, you know, he spent five and a half years in prison and 
uh, not all of it was horrible, but the first two years were pretty bad. And uh, um, after about a year in captivity, the Vietnamese, he was in very bad shape. If people don't know it. He, he was shot down over Hanoi, a search there, and missile ripped off one of the wings of his A4. And uh, he had parachuted into a lake. Uh, he had been upside down. His plane was upside down when he ejected. He broke one arm in three places and broke his other shoulder and then broke his leg in, in ejecting and hit the water, uh, managed to pull his life vest with a toggle with his teeth and he uh, couldn't use his arm and floated um, um, to the surface. A, a crowd dragged him out of the water. It fell into a lake. A uh, crowd dragged him out. Uh, somebody stabbed him with a bayonet in the groin and stabbed him again in the ankle and uh, an angry mob was getting ready to sort of beat him to death when the army showed up and took him off to what 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 the what became known by the Americans there, Hanoi Hilton. Uh, they found out uh, the Vietnamese thought he wasn't going to survive, and so they just left him in a cell to die. But then they discovered because the New York Times front page story in the New York Times that he was an admiral's son, and. Uh, uh, so they took him to a hospital, uh, manipulated his, tried to set his broken bones without any uh, anesthesia, <laughs> slapped a body cast on him. He got dysentery and fever. spent about a month in, in that hospital and uh, was malnourished and uh, was again on the brink of death. And they threw him in a cell with a couple of Americans, who, one of whom was almost as badly injured as he was, Medal of Honor winner, Bud Day. But the other uh, Air Force Major, uh, Norris Roverly, sort of nursed him back to some semblance of health. Once that happened, they put McCain in solitary for about two years, and that was what he said that was the roughest time. And uh, about a year into it, when he was still very injured and ill, the Vietnamese offered to release him as kind of a propaganda show. And uh, uh, McCain you know, knew that you know, he, he might have been injured enough where you could justify taking it, but he knew that it would, the Vietnamese would use that to demoralize the other POWs. His father was an admiral, so he gets to go home, but you poor schmucks, you're stuck here for the duration. And uh, so he, he declined it. He declined it three times. And uh, after uh, he, he finally took his, <laughs> took his final answer, and uh, several weeks later, they you know, came and for three or four days uh, beat him mercilessly, tied him up in ropes, did all the, sort of the real rough stuff uh, that went on in the first few years of uh, of uh, the POW experience in Vietnam. It got better after about 1970-71, after bad publicity, and the Vietnamese started treating them more, a little bit more humanely. But the first, you know, from the, I think the first guy was captured in 65, memory serves at rivalries, and from that till about 1970 or so, it was pretty terrible. And they broke him, and uh, um, you know, after about the third day, he was uh, uh, just uh, they had rebroken his one of his arms, and he was just a mess. And he had caved in and, and and made a confession that they had written for him, and they had recorded it, and he was deeply ashamed of it. And you know, many, 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 almost all POWs uh, all had a breaking point. The, your 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 charge in the code of conduct was to resist for as long as you're able. Uh, but, you know, there's only so much a human body can take, and uh, a lot of guys would break eventually. And uh, But then they would, you know, you know, lick their wounds for a couple of days, and you'd go right back to resisting. That was, that was, that, that's what you were supposed to do. And he did. But he always carried, he was always, always felt ashamed of it. He told me, I never really got over it. He lived in uh, sort of, 
the thing that bothered him the most, he said, was that I knew my father. His father at that time had just been made sink back, commander in chief of all U.S. forces in the Pacific, and he knew his father would hear the recording of his confession. He knew it would come to his attention somehow, and uh, and it really it really bothered him. Um, you know, he always said, "I failed." You know, I failed. You know, and you, no matter how many times you told him, you know, come on, man. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's really it's perfectly understandable. Um, you know, he, he, you know, and he, but you know, when it's over, he went right back to becoming a kind of a pain in the ass. He was a very outspoken, very noticeable. You know, the other POWs talked about him that he be very resilient, and you know, he was always given the Vietnamese lip, and you know, trying to you know, you know, trying to upset their plans, whatever they were. And uh, he was an inveterate communicator in prison, which is against the rules, and he was always getting caught doing it. But uh, you know, he went. After that, he was there another four years, and you know he acquitted himself quite quite bravely throughout. And, uh, and uh, that, in a nutshell, I guess, is the story of John McCain in Hanoi. Yeah, yeah, and and we have so much to talk about, and and time is is of the essence in in, in some sense. I'd like to talk a little about his decision um, to to run. For politics, he's now out of the military. It's we're at 1982, I guess, and he's going to make a run for the House. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it struck me in reading the book that um, McCain, at this point, has made a, a decision that he wants to be, to, to use Teddy Roosevelt's words from his Roosevelt gives a speech in 1910. Mm-hmm. called Citizenship in a Republic, sometimes known as the yeah. man in the arena yeah, speech. Uh, and and, and, mm-hmm. and it opens, the, the, the speech, Roosevelt's speech opens by saying, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who actually is in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, and errs and comes up short again, but if you will, for no lack of, of effort for trying. And it seems to me that that right. becomes part of the McCain code of conduct too, that he has made a decision that he wants to be a, a man in the arena. He wants to influence history. He wants to be a, an important person. Um, yep. and, and he decides to run uh, for politics because he sees the politicians as having far more power than the the admirals. Right. Yeah. Was so, he been, his last job, his last job in the navy was the navy's liaison officer to the senate. So he got to know quite quite quite. A, he had an office in this Brussels Senate office building, and he attended all the hearings of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And he got to know its members very well. And some some very senior members, Barry Goldwater, John Tower. Um, Jake Javits, uh, Scoop Jackson, and it, and it became sort of friends with the younger senators like Joe Biden and Gary Hart and Bill Cohen and stuff. But anyway, he he could see how much power these guys had over over the military. He said more power a senator would you'd watch him in a bill markup and you know write it on a scrap of paper and hand it to an aide, and all suddenly a, you know, billions of dollars would shift from one weapon system to another. And he said they had more power than any any admiral I knew. And uh, uh, and that that sort of planted the seed of his interest. Although his some of his uh, friends in in the uh, prison will tell you that he, back then they knew he was going to run for office someday. That he was always talking about politics and 
always seem to have that bug. Um, and, and I think that might be true. Um, but his, his story was that he really got the bug when he was in the Navy as a liaison officer in the Senate. His first marriage ended divorce and he remarried in, uh, I think, 1979 or 80. And uh, uh, Cindy, his second wife, was from Arizona and he went there. He had no hometown. so. Moved to Arizona, and uh, and he he moved there with the intention of looking for an office to run for, and I think within two years he was elected to, to Congress. His last in the Navy, here coincidentally, coincided with his father's funeral. His father died of a heart attack on a transatlantic flight coming back from Europe, and uh, they buried Narrington, and he buried his father, and then turned his Navy ID card that afternoon, and that night got on a flight to Phoenix. Uh, so it was in the an eventual day, to say the least. But uh, uh, you know, he was just, uh, and and had a pretty meteoric rise once he once he got into politics. Yeah, I mean, in 1982, he runs for the House for the first time. In '86, he's in the Senate already and and serves yeah, there six six terms. Yeah, yeah, it's just pretty remarkable. Just so, two years into his sixth term when he, when he died. Yeah, yeah. I remember his run in 2016 because it coincided with uh, Trump's run. Yes, um, yes it did. I, I think I, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about uh, McCain and Trump in a minute, but I, I, I want to sort of jump ahead. There's a lot to have talked about in his 2000 year, the year 2000 presidential run, but I'm mindful of our, our, our time. And so that which really was you know, sort of the, the the brightest light of his, you know, sort of political career, meaning in the, not the policy side, but the running for office side was the 2008 um, mm-hmm. uh, presidential campaign. And people yeah. say in, in looking in looking back of his 2008 presidential campaign that there were two major mistakes, Sarah Palin and suspending his campaign when the uh, economy was collapsing, and then two historically important shining moments, his town hall um, defense Mm -hmm. of of Senator Obama, and then Mm -hmm. the concession speech, which you wrote, um, Mm -hmm. upon losing the election. So maybe um, we can take this as one – I've got a lot of subtopics, but maybe you can talk a little bit Uh about the Palin choice, Campaigning, sure. um, secession sure. choice, and then the, yeah. and then the town hall and, and concession speech. I think you can probably sum it up way better than I could ask it in, in little bite-sized pieces. Sure. Um, well, it, first, we, you know, I, we, you know, we, uh, in 2000, he had been uh, he got in, you know, knowing he was unlikely to win. He was an underdog. Uh, George W. Bush was sort of the choice of the establishment then. So, and and he he just sort of ran free and easy and had this outspoken, colorful, charismatic campaign. And he outperformed expectations and raised his national profile. In 2008, he began it as a front runner, uh, uh, a position he's never that comfortable being in. And uh, um, you know, uh, we, we, you know, for, we didn't raise all the money we should have been able to raise. We spent some you know, money as if we were raising it, and uh, and made a number of other mistakes. And it was also it was just bad timing. McCain was an outspoken supporter of the surge in Iraq, and. Uh, Thought it was very important. That was very unpopular, particularly in New Hampshire, where where McCain's strength had been in 2000. 
Uh, you know, it was the end of uh, eight years of the Bush presidency, and uh, President Bush, God bless him, wasn't wasn't very popular at that moment, and any Republican was going to be viewed as uh, you know a Republican successor to the Bush administration. I think the wrong track number at the time was 88. Long track, well, President Bush's uh, favorables were, were very poor, and uh, so it was. It was always going to be difficult for a, a Republican, and but anyway, he 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 sort of lost his front row status, and he got back to where he was comfortable, you know, running from behind, and 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 did succeed, and he was very proud of it. Did succeed in winning the nomination, and winning New Hampshire, and then going on to win most of the important states in Super Tuesday in Florida before that, but. Uh, once we got into the general, um, you know, obviously, uh, 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 Senator, then Senator Obama was you know, captured the imagination of all sorts of people and the press corps for sure, and uh, was a you know, very talented speaker and was a very smart guy. Ran, ran, they ran a, a really brilliant campaign. Uh, come to respect all the people who worked on it, but. Uh, um, you know, uh, again, the right track, wrong track number was terrible, uh, and we were trying to get any attention, and um, you know, it, it was hard. Um, uh, when when it, when it came to the choice of Sarah Palin, it began. McCain decided to, we, we obviously the country wanted change. It was a change election. Obama had sort of cornered the market on change. We needed to get a piece of that message, and uh, and so he was constantly trying to think of ways to do that. And his original idea was to ask Joe Lieberman, who had been a Democrat and was at that time an independent who caucused with the Democrats, to be his vice president. Um, that's who he wanted to run with. And we talked to his staff, talked him out of it because word had leaked. And, you know, a lot of party elders, so to speak, you know, um, made sure we understood that it would be a disastrous convention if he were to pick up pro life Democrats to run with and, uh, or pro choice Democrats to run with. And, uh, you, you might be able to get it through 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 the convention, but there'd be a challenge on the floor, and the party would be divided, and that's you know, you'd be in, in miserable shape for the general election. So uh, uh, it took some doing, but we convinced him not to pick Senator Lieberman. Uh, he was unhappy about that, uh, and uh, and not particularly focused on other choices at that time, and uh, some aides. Uh, one aide, uh, sort of new, uh, about this new young governor of Alaska, who he had some business in Alaska, and Sarah Palin at that time had had a reputation for taking on the Republican sort of establishment in Alaska, and uh, she took on the oil companies, you know, for the, to, for, you know, to uh, the benefit of her constituents, and uh, uh, had a reformer reputation. It wasn't as people thought they were picking, trying to pick a candidate who appealed to what, what, what the to as the base. That wasn't the case at all. He wanted to pick somebody who looked like change. We were mindful that there were some disappointed Hillary Clinton voters in the Democratic Party who, who you know, might have might have been impressed by choosing a, a, a woman. We, but it was also just, we thought, we, we, she, she, we sort of viewed her as a reform candidate. Um, uh, it was a sort of a last-minute thing, so we didn't really vet as, as thoroughly as we could. A.B., uh, Caldwell House did the vetting. He's very good at it, and he did the best he could in a short amount of time, and gave McCain, I think, uh, you know, you know, quite uh, quite sound advice, which was she was high risk and high reward. Um, 
uh, it wasn't her fault, but she wasn't ready and she couldn't stand up to the pressures. Uh, you know, of a, lot, a lot of it was too, too, too steep a learning curve you know, for somebody with that little experience. And I worried and other people worried that it would rep, you know, damage his reputation. You know, we'd made an experience argument against Obama that it would damage that. And it would also sort of damage his uh, reputation of putting the country first because she, she, she would soon be seen to be not ready to lead the presidency. Um, that's how that happened. And he, you know, he, when asked later years, did you regret picking her? He said, I regret not picking Joe Lieberman. But no, he, he, never said a, um, he never said a critical word to her or about her or of her in private or public. And, uh, and uh, I think he thought that was the honorable thing to do. Uh, the, the suspension of the campaign, uh, that was, you know, we had managed, believe it or not, with all, with all our difficulties to sort of, you know, we we had about a five point lead coming out of our convention, and we were within a few, couple of points of Obama. So it was a very competitive race, certainly still doable. When Lehman Brothers collapsed, and with it, the real estate bubble burst, and the global credit system seemed to collapse all around us. It was, uh, you know, we recognized it as right as you know the stock market was selling off 800 points. We knew this was you know this is just what we just one bridge too far, you know, you know, it's a a miserable political environment for a Republican successor to George Bush to be running in. And now we had, you know, know, we were, we had uh, some of our economic advisors on the plane telling the came we were just days away from people not being able to get money with their ATM cards. Um, So we didn't, we knew we had to do something. So he's, McCain's instinct was to throw himself into it and try to help get the house Republicans on board for, you know, um, you know, some big rescue package. Uh, that's, uh, you know, he wanted to give, you know, look, I'm going to set aside my own campaign for a time being. It, it seemed like a marvelous idea and a very McCain-like idea at the time, but it was easily spun as McCain being erratic and, you know, why can't he go go to the debates and be a candidate and. Uh, so kind of that kind of blew up in our face, and we knew it within 48 hours that we weren't going to be able to convince some of the, you know, pre-Tea Party time. But there was still a big chunk of the caucus, the House Republican caucus, that wasn't going to feel like spending billions and billions of dollars on bank bailouts. Um, so uh, uh, it, uh, we, we, as soon as we got back to Washington, we realized this was going to be a little more than, than, than we should have, we should have known it would be a little more than uh, we had time to do, and uh, and that too became a, a, a mistake. Um, the the event you referred to, there were actually throughout the campaign there were incidents where people you know questioned Obama's patriotism or his citizenship or whatever. Um, uh, it, it happened long before that, but it didn't. They didn't seem to get that much attention. And McCain would correct them. I can remember one, some talk radio guy who was warming up the crowd somewhere in Ohio. I think it was kept emphasizing Obama's middle name over and over again. McCain came on the stage and said, "We, we don't do that." Okay, I know what you're trying to imply. Let's knock it off. Uh, but that, you know, that, it didn't get that much attention. But the, you know, there, there, there was, you know, by the time that that, you're, 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 that was late October, the suburb, uh, town hall in the suburban Twin Cities, and uh, there was, uh, you know, it was, you know, we knew we were losing, and uh, um, but uh, the crowds had been getting, <clears throat> you know, a couple of couple of events, the crowds had been shouting. Some people, not the crowds, the whole crowds, a few people were shouting. You know, uh, regrettable things, and the press were, you know, coming up to us and telling us. 
So McCain was aware of this, and and he knew he was he was have to correct it the next opportunity, and that's when somebody questioned Obama's citizenship or patriotism. He did it a couple of times at that town hall, and that became sort of it. You know, it it it, it was noticed, and I think applauded at the time. But it, it it it's it's legend has gotten bigger as time has passed because of the contrast. Uh, how crappy our politics have gotten in the last 10 years. But, uh, um, um, you know, uh, that was uh, the confession speech. It was, you know, we, you know, the last two, three weeks of the campaign, we knew there was hardly anything after the investment was really very little we could do to turn it around. Uh, but you still got to go through and give it your all because you've got down ballot races depending on a maximum effort. And uh, so, you know, he gave it his all and, you know, um, and he, he, he had, because McCain, you know, in that black sedan of history that he always wanted to be in, he was acutely aware of when, you know, the occasion when he thought history might take notice of him. And he knew that night, conceding to the first African-American president, would be one of them. So he wanted to note the historical significance of Obama's election. He wanted to specifically reference what, it, what an African-American being elected president meant as a sign of the country's progress. And he wanted to be gracious, of course, as most people concede are. And uh, um, uh, but but he 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 he, he, he there is a part of it I think more than anything else. So was McCain's inability to his his constant restlessness. He 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 didn't want to live in an experience after its expiration date. You know whether it was a good experience or a, a, or a defeat like this, this was. Yeah, he wanted to move on. He he, he said that, that was it. His restlessness was the secret to his resilience, and uh, he wanted to move on. He wanted the country to move on. I remember his Secret Service, the head of the Secret Service detail that night, the night, you know, election night, started briefing him on, on how, how you know, things would go. He would keep his detail for a couple of weeks. That's, that was the norm. And uh, he, was, he began to explain what they were going to have planned in the morning, and John just cut him off and said, you know, I, I tell you what, Bill, I would appreciate a ride home tonight. Um, and then you guys go home to your families. We're not going to see each other again. And uh, the very next morning, John and Cindy were seen walking to their local coffee shop uh, to get his morning cappuccino. <laughs> As he put it, no more protection than some sunscreen. But uh, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's, that's it. Uh, that was, uh, yeah, but, but uh, so you downplay it a little bit. I think that the, the town hall, when he picks up the microphone, takes the microphone away from the, uh, yeah. the questioner, and, and, and he gives a full-throated defense of Obama. He says, you know, he's a good man, and, 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 and you know, essentially, don't, don't say that. I mean, when you contrast yeah. it with Trump rallies, nothing compares to Trump rallies, of course, but even at this time, he could have just let the question be, but, but he really said, stop. It's it's yeah. it's it's factually wrong, it's offensive right. to me, and and yeah. and I've got to and I've just got to call you out on saying that Obama was yeah. uh, sort he, of well, unqualified he, 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 president. He, he he was prepared. He went into that town hall prepared for it, and it wasn't just that one woman. There was a, another person who said something about being frightened by Obama, and, and he. Come on, so he is not. He is a perfectly decent fellow, and, and a patriot. He's not somebody you need to be scared of, you know. Which yeah. you know, which is seems ridiculous to him. So yeah, he was prepared for it, though. He he went in there knowing 
or somebody said it. You know, what people I don't think really appreciate is you hear when you're the candidate at, one, at some of these big rallies and stuff, you don't really hear what people are yelling in the back. You know, it's just, you know, you hear, you, your aides or reporters will tell you about it, but you don't hear it. And his view was as soon as I hear somebody say something, I'll say something. And that was, he, he, he expected to hear it at a town hall when there's a give and take and not just a cheers from the crowd. But, so he went in ready for it and, uh, and you know, did the right thing. Yeah, but 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 in a full-throated way. I mean, he could have said, you know, no, no, no. Let's. I'm I'm just going to move on from that question. But but he he said he's a good man, and there's nothing for you to be a, a, afraid of. An important thing. I'd like before we just move to the, the last few topics that I know we're running so late, Mark. But I, maybe we should do mm-hmm. part two of this sometime. But but could you? I mean, these are your words, I think. But I'd love for you, if you wouldn't mind, to Read read to us the very end of the the concession speech because it is, you know, I said at the beginning of the, the interview that you read this book and you know things make you laugh and things make you cry. Mm-hmm. This was a mm-hmm. goosebump goosebump at least producing moment and and so I'd love mm-hmm. for you to read your your words because it it is a. A fitting into the 2008 presidential campaign and perhaps a segue into the next little bit. Okay. Uh, the very end of it, or where, where would you like me to pick it up? Wherever, um, wherever, wherever, okay. wherever you think it, 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 it captures the moment of what you and McCain were trying to capture. Sure. Um, okay. This campaign was and will remain the great honor of my life. And my heart is filled with nothing but gratitude for the experience and to the American people for giving me a fair fair hearing before deciding that Senator Obama and my old friend, Senator Joe Biden, should have the honor of leading us for the next four years. I would not be an American worthy of the name should I regret a fate that has allowed me the extraordinary privilege of serving this country for half a century. Today, I was a candidate for the highest office in the country I love so much. And tonight, I remain her servant. That is blessing enough for anyone, and I thank the people of Arizona for it. Tonight, more than any night, I hold in my heart nothing but love for this country and for all its citizens, whether they supported me or Senator Obama. I wish Godspeed to the man who was my former opponent and will be my president. I call on all Americans, as I have often in this campaign, to not despair of our present difficulties, but to believe always in the promise and greatness of America, because nothing is inevitable here. Americans never quit. We never surrender. We never hide from history. We make history. Thank you, and God bless you, and God bless America. Yeah, it's 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 wonderful. It's wonderful stuff, Mark. And um, thank you. You and 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 the senator should be. Very, very proud of 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 saying that and and standing for the sentiment that that it it represents. Um, Thank you. I sort of feel like, in some sense, that's a that's a that's a great note to to end on. But I want I want to talk just one more minute, um, if we could, about a couple of of things. One is, people used to say of McCain. That, that he carried a grudge, and, and, and we talked about this this go to the middle of the ring and, and, and box mm-hmm. um, until somebody falls down. You've just said once or twice that one of the, the, the great attributes of, of McCain was that 
he, I mean, he's almost the, it's almost like very zen of him. He lived in the moment. He didn't, yeah. he didn't look back. Um, mm-hmm. The past was the past, you know, he and mm-hmm. Satchel Paige, you know, sort of looking at the past uh, as something that could be gaining on you so you don't look back. Um, right. And, and and that informed uh, behavior of his, which I still to this day find um, so admirable, which was the normalization of relations with right. uh, Vietnam, you know, so much for yeah. McCain never forgetting a grudge. But but talk yeah, talk to us a little I, bit, bit about that. Uh, that, that's usually the first thing I go to when I when I would rebut accusations that he was a grudge carrier. I said, yes, yeah, carry such a you know, such a grudge holder. He normalized relations with Vietnam. But uh, um, hang on a second, somebody's coming down the stairs here. Um, uh, he 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 done. I mean, he had a temper, and he and he, he was very confrontational. He, he, he when he was in a fight, he was you know. Like just as we discussed before, charge in the center of the ring and just start throwing punches. So people would mistake that. They also, you know, I, I don't think appreciated that 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 temper or his confrontational style was always directed at people. His stature never below. You know, he punched up or punched across, but never down. Um, he, uh, but he did have a uh, huge capacity for forgiveness, and because he understood his own, and 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 you know, a great. Uh, uh, um, need to ask forgiveness when he had wronged someone he again and again and again um when he knew he'd gotten carried away or done something he shouldn't have to someone he would beg their forgiveness and it was sincere i mean he would he meant it sincerely uh but he did he he, he was a very forward-looking guy he wouldn't look back not not you know you might get nostalgic like we all do for our missed youth but uh you know, it was not. He never, he never dwelled in the past, and he couldn't. You know, I remember when we passed McCain Feingold after years and years and years of trying it. You know, the next day it was like it was the last thing he was interested in talking about. <laughs> you know, we, we well, we did that. Now on to the next thing. You know, um, you know. I remember when we won the New Hampshire primary in 2000 by almost 20 points or something. He he wanted to fly to South Carolina that night and start the campaign there. Not 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 not, not have the party we'd earned. Damn it. <laughs> You know, he's just that kind of guy, you know, and it, it, it was a, it's a marvel, marvel, marvelous capacity to have. And that's how he ends up being the chief Republican advocate for normalizing relations with Vietnam, you know, a country and where he had suffered uh, uh, greatly. Yeah, so the, 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 to end this normalization story, tell us, McCain, it's McCain and, and John Kerry who are sort of leading the, the fight to normalize mm-hmm. Uh, relations. So mm-hmm. Kerry is a Silver Star recipient, and mm-hmm. McCain, God knows how many stars and Purple Hearts mm-hmm. he 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 received. But yeah. they 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 go into the Oval Office with 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 Bill Clinton, who is yeah. a draft evader. Um, yeah. And 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 Clinton's worried about well, if I normalize relations with Vietnam, how will that play for me, Bill Clinton, right. uh, politically? Right. And and and, yeah. and and so Clinton turns turns to McCain and he says, you know, so tell me, you know, essentially like wh- why should I why should I do this? Yeah. What you know, what's what's in it yeah. for me in in, yeah. in a way? And yeah. and I thought that McCain's oh. response to Clinton was, you know, so yeah. characteristic of McCain and so instructive about this, you know, mm-hmm. sort of be here now, now be here um, aspect mm-hmm. to his character. 
Yeah, he, he, I remember it very well. It was in the Oval Office. And it, it, it followed a meeting several weeks earlier in which there had been quite a few people in attendance, and it went on forever, and the king was embarrassed by that. He thought they had consumed way too much of the president's time. So he had agreed to go down and speak to the president one more time at Kerry's request, but only as Kerry promised him it would be a brief meeting. They didn't want to take another two hours of Clinton's time. And uh, we got there, and, and uh, uh, Kerry gave a very uh, uh, good yeah, effective summary of the situation, the political situation, and uh, and and the uh, reasons for why we should normalize. I spoke first, and uh, and then Clint said, "John, what, what, what do you think?" And John t- said, "I'm really very well." He said, "Mr. President, uh, I'm tired of looking back in anger at Vietnam, and I'm tired of my country looking back in anger at Vietnam. And if you move us forward." I'll back you 100. percent And that's you know that's what I had to say. It was, uh, Clinton was clearly moved by it. Uh, everybody in the room was moved by it. It was just a uh, you know it was just an impulse. There was nothing personal in it for McCain. It was I mean personal in a uniquely personal way, but not not in sort of a self-interested political way. There was nothing for him to be gained. Um, he just thought it was in the best interest of the country and the best interest of the people of Vietnam that we reconcile. And uh, and establish a normal relationship, and he did it for purely those motives. And uh, yeah, and uh, it was was really one of the moments I was proudest of him. Yeah, he says to 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 Clinton, in addition to I'm tired of looking back in anger, and I'm tired of our country looking back in anger. And if you normalize relations with Vietnam, I'll back you 100%. He says at the outset of that, he says it doesn't matter to me anymore who was for the yeah. war and who was against yeah. the war. It's time to normalize. And, yeah. and that's, that's – I can't say that I would um, not carry a grudge were I, were I John McCain. So kudos to him for, for, for that. You mentioned one thing. Um, you said that how McCain uh, worked so hard with um, Russ Feingold to, to pass the landmark McCain-Feingold mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Campaign mm-hmm. uh, legis- mm-hmm. legislation. Um, the irony, of course, uh, w- w- people think of McCain as properly so that he was a he was a conservative, and mm-hmm. um, conservatives to liberals are you know something of the enemy. Yeah. But but the irony, of course, yeah. is that the the case which is the rallying point of of, of, of so many uh, liberals and and maybe some non liberals too is the uh, desire to overturn Citizens United. Um, right. But, of course, right. what, did, what, what did Citizens United, in fact, overturn? Matt McCain time goal. Big, 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 big parts of it. Not, not all of it, but big parts of it. Yeah. But, I mean, so here's, you know, so here's John very McCain. No, very annoyed by that. I'm, I know he went up to uh, um, Ted Olson, who was one, one, of, the, one of the lawyers at on behalf of uh, Citizens United, and uh, um, or no, maybe I didn't, um, but uh, um, I'm sorry, I could be incoming there. Um, but I know he was very upset with that. Also, the Solicitor General had defended McKean Feigold in the court first ruled on it, which found it all fine. Yeah, but sending the O'Connor left and uh, other justices arrived. And, uh, you know, the second time around, they weren't so, so generous. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, 
Mark, if you would take us out, uh, and, uh, if you have your, if you have the book handy, if you would take us out, I can read it, but but you're a better reader than am I. Um, the 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 page five fifty seven. Um, um, you 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 um, are talking about the, the the closing lines of John McCain's last book, the book that you guys did together uh-huh. before this book. Right. But you quote that book, mm-hmm. and it starts mm-hmm. off with what an in, what an ingrate. Yeah, maybe you could take us yeah, out of sure. this interview, because I think this mm-hmm. this 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 is. I mean, you and John McCain are are are, are, are peas in a pod in some sense. You're both. Uh, romantic cynics, if you will, yeah. and, and yeah, so I, and I so I love I love your prose, um, okay. and um, maybe you can take us out of this interview by reading us um, what sure. I think is, is 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 a wonderful way to end this interview and and how you ended your book. Right, I'll do it. So the paragraph begins near the end while we still could. John would read aloud to those close read aloud to close friends and family the closing lines of our last book tapping his finger on the page as he read. What an ingrate I would be to curse the fate that concludes the blessed life I've led. I hope those who mourn my passing, and even those who don't, will celebrate as I celebrate. A happy life lived in imperfect service to a country made of ideals whose continued success is the hope of the world. And I wish all of you great adventures, good company, and lives as lucky as mine. Mark Salter, the the book is The Luckiest Man, Life with John McCain. Thank you so, so very much for talking to us today. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.